Morning, everybody. We are officially one week from Christmas, and so this is my opportunity to um, remind all the husbands that if you have not yet, like you have a great idea, and you've had a great idea, maybe you don't have a great idea, you, this is your prophetic warning um, that now is the time, but even if you've got a great idea, today's the day to order it, all right? You're welcome. Um, that's not part of my sermon, that's just my service to you, um, and to all the moms, thank you for buying presents for our children on our behalf. Okay. Every year we do Christmas songs um, as our Christmas series. We, that's not necessarily by design. It's just what we've done a bunch of times in a row. And, and for me, it really is one of the most amazing things about the Christmas season, that you, you spend all your time, you know, like you're running around, you're very busy, but if you stop and notice, you'll be in like a store or a coffee shop or something, and you're surrounded on the one hand by like all the most dramatic symbols of materialism that our culture can possibly conjure up. But at that same moment, you might hear incredible theological truth and beauty coming out of the speakers at like Starbucks. You know what I mean? That's how Christmas songs are. They're a part of our culture and so they, they almost like get a pass but you might hear them and not even think about the fact like I'm, I'm in line at Starbucks and I hear true God of true God, light from life eternal. And like that's like someone's reading the Council of Nicaea to me right now in Starbucks. So we have these incredible Christmas songs and, and that's amazing and it's a gift but part of the problem with that is that we hear them so much and every year and they're so, so wrapped up in a, as a part of kind of what Christmas is to us that we can often forget to actually pay attention to the significance of the words. And I think that's the case with a song that is our, our title song for this series, What Child Is This? It's so Christmas to us that we might forget to actually stop and ask the question that that song is asking of us. What child is this? And as we've said every week, that's a question every single person has to wrestle with at some point. And how you choose to answer that question, who you believe it was that was born that day, 2,000 years ago, will change absolutely everything about your life. And so we've been throughout the series trying to address that question in a variety of ways through different biblical lenses of understanding the identity of Jesus. We talked in the first week about Jesus being the good shepherd. We talked in the second week about him being the servant, the master who nonetheless serves his servants. And this week we're going to take a look at something that is revealed in Isaiah 9-6. This is a very old prophecy from hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Um, but it gets quoted every single Christmas. You've probably heard it many times. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the identity of Jesus as son is, is central to Christian theology. Jesus is the son. We say that all the time. And what's interesting is if you look in the New Testament, you'll find a variety of different kind of signifiers for Jesus that involve the idea of son. These are the three kind of primary ones. He's described as the son of man. He's described as the son of David. And he's described as the son of God. And we as Christians tend to kind of use them interchangeably and think of them all as just different ways to say Jesus. And that's appropriate, but what we often miss are the, the kind of subtle differences, the nuances, and the things that are brought to our understanding of Jesus from these different names. Each one of them has a unique and specific Old Testament background that informs our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. So if you look at each of these names in their original context, you see, first of all, like different subtle things about Jesus that are important, but more than that, as we're going to see today, if you understand what they all have in common, you learn something about Jesus that's, that's so fundamental to who he is and how you're meant to relate to him that I honestly, without exaggeration, can say if you do not understand what these titles say about Jesus, you cannot relate to him rightly as a Christian. 
So we're going to do is look at each of them in turn. We're going to try to do three sermons in the time of one sermon and just take a look at what these have to teach us about who Jesus is and how we're supposed to relate to him. First of all, um, he's the son of man. And again, like I said a second ago, this is something that we typically just kind of use as a synonym for Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. And that's appropriate. I mean, the New Testament uses this term to describe Jesus all the time. It actually calls Jesus the son of man 88 times. And in addition to that, um, it's the term for himself that Jesus preferred. So when Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels, he primarily uses this title. He doesn't say he's the son of God. More often he says he's the son of man. And so it's very important. But again, we typically just think son of man equals Jesus and, and don't actually pay attention to the Jewish background. In the Jewish mind, that had a very obvious and very specific meaning. Here's Ezekiel 2.1. God's talking to the prophet Ezekiel. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. Now Ezekiel, right before this, has just seen a vision of the throne of God. Ezekiel 1 is like the most dramatic vision you can even fathom. I mean, it's like sensory overload. He sees these bizarre angelic beings and with them are these whirling wheels that have eyes all over them and there's like lightning and flashes of fire. There are storms happening. And above all of that, he sees this beautiful platform on which is the throne of God himself. It's like overwhelming visual of the otherness of God and how different God is from him. And then in response to that, immediately after, when God addresses Ezekiel, he calls him son of man. And that gets you to the idea of what son of man is. At the simplest level, son of man in the Hebrew mind just meant a human. And so in Ezekiel's case, it's emphasizing this is God in all his glory and holiness and majesty. You are, in, as opposed to that, a son of man. In Hebrew, uh, the word for man is Adam, just like Adam's name. And so he's, you, he's called the son of Adam, and you get the idea there. Like the, You are the son of the category that you're a part of. So if you're the son of a human, you're a human. And you see this all over the Bible. Ezekiel gets called this over and over again, 90 times in the book of Ezekiel. And it's meant to emphasize that he is a human. God is God, you're a son of man. You see it used in this same sense um, it, really famously in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? If you're familiar with the way Hebrew poetry works, it's often done in parallel lines like this where the two parallel lines are saying the same thing or they're commenting on each other. So here you see man in direct parallel with son of man. It just means a human. And it's just like Ezekiel. The psalmist is saying you have God in all his glory and power who creates the heavens. Like I look at the moon and I look at the stars and think about the God that could create that. And when I think about that, it's, it's mind-blowing to consider that that God cares about a son of man. So, all that to say, the simplest definition for son of man is human. But when Jesus calls himself the son of man, and he doesn't call himself a son of man, he calls himself the son of man. When Jesus calls himself son of man, he does not have Psalm 8 in mind, he does not have Ezekiel in mind. He has a different prophecy in mind, one that was iconic in the imagination of the Jewish people. And it comes from Daniel 7. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel at all, um, you know that like the first six chapters of Daniel are just normal and awesome. I mean, they're not normal. They're actually some of the best stories in the Old Testament. But they're the ones you're familiar with if you grew up in church. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. These are like very flannel graph friendly Sunday school type things. Then you get to Daniel 7. And especially like some of you may remember the first time you read the whole book of Daniel and you're like, oh yeah, Daniel in the lion's den. I know this story. Daniel 7 all of a sudden is like a fever dream 
out of nowhere. It just gets bizarre. So Daniel, in Daniel 7, he's given a vision. And what he sees is the sea. And in Hebrew thought, the sea is this source of chaos and disorder that's often opposed to the good plans and purposes of God. So you have the sea, source of chaos. And out of the sea, these four monsters emerge. And Daniel sees them come out one by one. And each of them is like a a hybrid mixture of multiple animals. And they're horrific. And he's terrified of them. And an angel later comes and tells him, these four horrific animals represent four nations, four kind of empires that are going to arise after Babylon. And they're going to arise and rule and terrorize the earth. So Daniel's been given a vision of nations represented by these horrible hybrid monsters coming out of the place of chaos and, and causing terror on the earth. And after that, Daniel looks to the heavens and he sees thrones set out. Not throne, but thrones, plural. And the Ancient of Days, which is one of Daniel's titles for God, the Ancient of Days comes out and takes his seat on his throne. So, so here's what you have to picture. Ocean, chaos, monsters are coming out, ravaging the earth, but in heaven, a throne is set up. And the king, God, comes out, sits upon his throne in heaven, and looks upon the earth to judge it. Chaos, disorder, nations wreaking havoc on earth. But God is in heaven, and he sits on his throne to judge. And then Daniel sees this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, a human. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There's a couple things going on here. First of all, he's riding on clouds. And typically when we think about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, we're thinking end times and we're thinking about Jesus coming down. But in the Daniel 7 image, that's not what's happening. The Ancient of Days is in heaven sitting on his throne, and the nations of earth are raging, and the Son of Man is riding the clouds up to the side of God. And and any Hebrew reader of this would have had their mind blown by this. Because the only person who rides the clouds in the Old Testament, the only one, is God. If you read the Psalms, it happens all over the place, other prophets. God comes on the clouds to render judgment. So now you have this bizarre thing. There's a son of man, a human, who's riding on the clouds, and he's brought up to the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The nations are represented by these horrific monsters that come from the chaos. God sits in heaven to judge, and what he does is has a son of man, a human, who he gives eternal kingship over the world. That's the image of Daniel 7. Now, it's hard to picture like a higher vision of what a person could do, riding the clouds to sit beside God and rule the nations. And if you have that in your mind, it helps make sense of this passage, which is from the very end of Mark. Jesus is on trial. He's about to die. He's standing before the high priest, and this happens. But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? That's the word for Messiah, the Christos. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? Notice he doesn't ask him if he's the son of man. He says, are you the son of the blessed, son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see how Daniel 7 this is? Obviously, that's what he means. You're not going to see a son of man. You're going to see the son of man. And just so you know which one I'm talking about, the one that rides the clouds and sits at the right hand of God. 
And just so you know that I'm not misinterpreting that, look what the high priest does. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus, in the eyes of the high priest and the others and the rest of the council, he deserves death. Not for saying he's God. In this case, it's for saying he's the son of man from Daniel 7. That's how highly they saw this figure. And by the way, just as a side note, because a lot of the time skeptics will talk about the historical Jesus as if he never thought of himself as divine. In this account, which is a very old account, note that when they, they like tear their clothes and say it's blasphemy, Jesus doesn't like jump in and go, oh wait, you got, I, I think you guys misunderstood me. I didn't mean the Daniel 7 son of man. I meant the Ezekiel son of man, just a human. No, he says, I'm the son of man who rides the clouds and is going to sit behind God. And the people understand what he means and condemn him to death for blasphemy. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of man? And again, this is his preferred term for himself in the Gospels. It means he is the human who is the eternal king of the nations of earth. That's what that means. The human being who rides the clouds, sit beside God the Father, and rule over the nations. Eternal kingship. Now, son of David is probably the easiest one to understand because it's right there in the name. The title son of David is meant to call to mind a promise that God made to David a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. This is that promise. David's the king of Israel at the time. He's united all of the tribes. And God tells him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God tells David, you're the king, and from your line, that's what he means by offspring who come from your body. It's very straightforward. From your descendants, there will be a king who will rule the throne forever. And so from this point on, every one of David's descendants who rules in Israel, the kings of Judah, all of them are a son of David in a very real sense. But all of them receive a kingdom and have the kingdom pass away from them. And so in that line, there's this promise that someday we're looking forward to a son of David who will not have the kingdom and then lose it, but will actually have the kingdom and the throne of David forever. So the gospel authors want you to know that this promise comes to its fruition in Jesus. Matthew starts out his gospel like this. It's literally the first verse of Matthew. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. We always say this, but it's really important to remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name, guys. There's not Mary Christ and Joseph Christ who, who have Jesus Christ, their son. Jesus, Jesus is his name. Christos, which means Messiah, is his title. So you read it like the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I wish we had time to talk about the fact that he's the son of Abraham, but for this, for this the point is the son of David. And that's where Matthew's focus is. Two. So he starts off by saying, this is the son of David. This is the promised king. And just so you don't miss it, he goes on to like illustrate this in really dramatic detail. Um, we spent like a year and a half going through the entire gospel of Matthew. So those of you who've been here for at least a few years, you might even remember this from week one of that series. After Matthew writes this, he goes on to list a genealogy, which is just one of those lists in the Bible that says, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. And you, that might kind of cause your eyes to glaze over and you're just like, why are we starting what should be the most exciting book ever with a list of names? But you have to see what Matthew's doing. He lays out three different sets of 14 generations. 
that go from Abraham to Jesus. And so he's designing them on purpose, and he tells you that. He like goes out of his way to be like, there's 14 generations here, and there's 14 generations here, and there's 14 generations here. And the reason he does that is because the, the Hebrew people at this time had a, a system of comparing numbers and letters called gematria. And in gematria, you could take a number and find its numeric equivalent by using the letters from the Hebrew alphabet that corresponded to those numbers. It's not some weird, funky, mysterious thing. It's just a way that they did symbolism. And Matthew is very obviously doing this. And the number 14 is the numeric equivalent of the Hebrew name David. Hebrew language doesn't have vowels used in it, so the, the, the three letters that make up David, the D, the W, and the D, basically, um, are 4, 6, and 4, 14. And so what Matthew wants you to see, he goes, Jesus is the son of David. And just in case you're not getting how important that is, I'm going to lay out this entire genealogy to reinforce it numerically. He's the son of David. He's the son of David. He's the son of David. And if you remember God's promise to David, that means that he, like, he's not making, first and foremost, a claim about divinity. The main thing he's saying, the first thing he's saying is something that's like a, a political statement. This is the rightful heir of the throne of Israel and therefore the rule of the entire world. And so when characters in the Gospels call him son of David, they don't primarily mean something other than a political statement. Herod is the so-called king of Israel. Caesar is the so-called king of Rome. People who call Jesus son of David. That includes a lot of people. The blind men call him son of David. Probably the most famous example is when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We call that the triumphal entry. Remember, everyone's waving palm branches. They say Hosanna, which means something like save us. Hosanna to the son of David. That's a really crazy, subversive, political thing to say at that time. They're saying Herod's not king. Caesar's not king. This is the rightful king of Jerusalem, of Israel, and therefore of the world. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of man? means he's the human who rules over the nations eternally. What does it mean for him to be son of David? It means he's the, the son of David, the offspring from Israel who's going to rule over the nations eternally. You see the overlap. Now the third one is where we're the most likely to miss the point. Because son of God to us, and, and this makes sense, it's totally intuitive, son of God means divinity to us. We say, well, you just said son of man means he's human, so son of God must mean that he's God, Right? And of course, as Christians, that's true. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But in the Jewish mind, that's not what that meant. When you called someone the son of God, the, first, the Hebrew hearers of that did not first and foremost think divinity. They would have thought Psalm 2. Tons of other verses too, but Psalm 2 is the one that kind of establishes this the most firmly. The, the Psalms are Israel's hymn book. So these are the songs that they sang week after week, year after year. This is like what shapes their identity as a people, singing these songs. And there's 150 Psalms, and that book is designed very intentionally. And Psalm 1 is kind of like the introductory psalm to the entire book. It rehearses a lot of the themes that are going to come, but it's like a setup psalm. And so Psalm 2 is kind of like the first proper psalm you get in the book of Psalms. Very important, significant psalm for the people of Israel. And this is what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So you're, you're getting this image of all the nations of earth personified and united against the rule of God. So you, you want to think, think Daniel 7 imagery, right? The nations rising out of the ocean, 
these horrible hybrid monsters that want to rule the earth. Now we have the nations personified as individual people. The kings are like representing all of their nations and saying, we do not want to be ruled by God. We want to be untied from his bonds. We want complete autonomy and control. Now, fortunately, nations don't do that anymore, but back then they used to do that. They used to not like God. I'm joking. The joke is that they still do that now also, just for everybody who missed that. The nations rage on earth, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, this is awesome. It's actually one of the most comforting verses in the entire Bible, I think. The nations rage, the nations plot, they conspire together. They want to throw off the rule of God. And what's God do? He laughs at them. And he sits down in his throne in heaven. He's not scared. He's not concerned. He's not worried like, oh man, I hope they don't win. He sits in his throne in heaven and judges them. And again, do you see the Daniel 7 here? The nations come out of the ocean. They rage against God. What's he do? The Ancient of Days sets up thrones in heaven and sits down to judge. And he appoints a king. What happens here? The nations rage and plot. God laughs, sits in his throne in heaven, and announces a king. Now the king gets to speak. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The rest of the psalm goes on to say, as a result of that, like in light of that, the nations had better just submit to God. Because if you take refuge in him, you'll be blessed. But the wrath of the son is quickly kindled. And so you don't want to be in his way. That's how it finishes. But here you have the son himself speaking. And this is where this idea of the son of God enters into the Hebrew consciousness. It's, it's the one chosen by God to rule the nations forever. Are you starting to see a pattern here? And again, just like Daniel 7, just like the promise to David, nations in rebellion, a throne in heaven, a king who's chosen to rule over them for all eternity. So what's the point? What's it mean for Jesus to be son of man? It means he's the human who's going to rule and reign over all the nations forever. What's it mean for him to be the son of David? Well, he's the Israelite offspring of the king of Israel who's going to rule the nations forever. And what does it mean for him to be the son of God? It means he's the anointed Messiah who's going to rule and reign over the nations forever. All three of these titles, they, they contribute these little nuances, but at the same time, they're all saying, ultimately, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And just in case you're not convinced of that yet, the Christmas story is here to help. Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then you skip down to verse 35, and he says at the end, The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see it? 
This is the announcement of who Jesus is going to be, given to his mother, Mary. And Gabriel says, well, you're going to have a son. He's Mary's son. So he's a human. He's the son of man. But he'll be great, called the son of the Most High. The Lord is going to give him the throne of his father, David. His father, David. He's the son of David. And he's going to reign and rule over the house of Jacob. That's another way of saying Israel. Forever, because his kingdom will have no end. You see this? And then last, just so you don't miss it, Gabriel says, he's going to be called the son of God. This is Psalm 2. This is, once again, three ways of saying, this is the king who's going to rule over the nations forever. But the beautiful, mysterious thing that's revealed here in the New Testament for the first time, that's not clear in the Old Testament. You can see it when you look back after knowing what happens. But what's revealed here that is so incredibly beautiful is that he's not just the son of God in the Psalm 2 sense. Of course he's that. He's also going to literally be the son of God. Mary is his mother, but he has no earthly father. His father will be God. Gabriel's later going to say, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And you're going to give birth to this son who will be holy, the son of God. And so it's not just so important. It's not just that God has chosen a human to rule and reign over the nations forever. Of course it's that. Son of man, son of David, son of God. But he's also literally going to be God in the flesh. Turns out the image of the son of God is actually more literal than anyone probably thought up until this point. And that's why Christians have said for 2,000 years that Jesus is God and man united in one person without confusion. The divine nature and the human nature come together in the person of Jesus Christ. And that person is called to rule and reign over the nations forever. And here's the thing. If we would just quote Isaiah completely, instead of every Christmas just quoting Isaiah 9-6, you'd know all of this. Because Isaiah tells you, look what he says about the son who's going to be born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does Isaiah say? The child to be born will be called mighty God and he will rule a throne over the kingdom of David forevermore. The child to be born, the son we're going to be given, is son of man, son of David, son of God. And all of those things mean he is the eternal king of all the nations of earth. Now, in one sense, this makes like the easiest possible application you could ever have from a sermon. But at the same time, it's the most difficult. Because we, in the culture that we're a part of, most of us, not everyone in the room was raised here, but if you were raised in this culture, or if you've lived here for a long time, um, whether you like it or not, you are a product of a culture that prizes autonomy and individualism above absolutely everything else. You want to be able to make every decision for yourself. You want to be able to determine your own destiny. We really, in other words, don't like kings very much. In fact, the reason this nation was established, right, was because we didn't want to deal with a king. That's a drastic oversimplification. This isn't a history class. But we don't like kings. We like to determine our own destiny. Let me ask you, how well is that working out for our culture? Pretty good. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I'm not trying to say, I'm really, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not trying to say that, like, 
in the earthly realm, there's nothing good to be had in like individualism and autonomy. What I'm saying is in the world of morality and ethics and goodness and virtue, when there is no king who determines what is and is not good, what will happen is what the prophets promised would happen. People will call good evil and evil good. Let me ask you, are you seeing that in the world around you right now? It turns out that having complete moral autonomy isn't very good for people. And so we want to be the master of our destiny, and we want to throw off the chains just like they do in Psalm 2. But what you end up with is monsters from the ocean ruling and reigning, and you end up with the absolute moral insanity and the upside-down world that we live in today. And so to that world, the Christian message is clear, and it's hard for us to hear, but we need it. The Christian message is there is a king who rules, and the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. When the king says something, you obey. That's how kingship works. Now, if you trust the king and you believe that the king is good, that's not a hard thing. But man, we do not have a lot of experience with good rulers. So it's not natural to us. But listen, like, like read the words of Jesus and the way he talks about himself. It's so funny because a lot of the time, um, people who are critical of Christianity or even a lot of Christians, and so you know, be gentle with yourself if this is something you've said before, but like, we want to just be like, I don't know about all the, you know, Christianity is all about all these rules and stuff. I just want to do what Jesus said. Okay. If you think that, I agree with you. And I would urge you to just go actually read what he said then. Because Jesus says things like, let's take the Great Commission as our first example. The Great Commission is this, the beautiful missionary call to the church that Jesus gives at the very end of Matthew. You know what he says? He starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, this is who I am. I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm the eternal king of everything. And then he says, go therefore. So the, so the therefore means all of that stuff that he's about to say is based on the fact that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Then he says, go make disciples of all nations. And if you're familiar now with these images, you go, oh yeah, the nations that he is the rightful king of. And what does he tell you to do with those nations? It says, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to believe in me in their heart. No, that's not what he says. You know what he says? That sounds good, huh? That's not what he says. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. That's Matthew 28, 19. What's a disciple? Somebody who's saved by grace, who's baptized, they're identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then they obey him. That's what a Christian is. And that's not the only time he says stuff like that. In John, he says, um, the one who knows my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So the Bible's got a great litmus test for whether or not you love Jesus. And it's not, I feel really warm in my heart when I think about him. Um, That should happen for the Christian from time to time. Um, If your relationship with God is good, that might happen a lot. But it says, the litmus test for whether or not you love Jesus is do you know and keep his commandments. After the the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus like lays out with great clarity, like this is how I want my people to live. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the one who built his house on the solid rock. And that's the person who can withstand the storm. And again, it's not everyone who hears these words of mine and believes them. That's a prerequisite. You've got to believe them to obey them. But he gives a sermon on the mountain and says, everyone who believes these words of mine and does them. 
And man, the scariest one of all, um, you know, you read it with fear and trembling every time, is when Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not what? Do what I say. What's a Lord? Lord's the master. Lord's the king. Is you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the stuff I say. So here's the thing. When a king tells you something, and this goes double when it's this king, right? When the king of kings and lord of lords, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, when he tells you something, you do it. When the king says jump, modern, autonomous, 2023 Westerners want to be like, well, Lord, let's talk about the details of the jump. Like, where am I jumping? In what manner should I be jumping? We got to work this stuff out and then I'll decide if I want to jump in that way. Like, no, you guys, it's a cliche for a reason. The king of kings says jump. You only say one thing, right? How high? And so here's the thing. I want to be really clear at this point um, because I don't want to be misunderstood. Your obedience to the king of kings is not the thing that places you in the kingdom. Your ability to obey perfectly is not required for you to be saved and brought into the family of God. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus because of his work on your behalf. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Jesus saves you through no work of your own. That's how you enter the kingdom. Jesus, or Paul rather, in Ephesians talks about how you have been transferred from the domain, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That was done for you by Jesus. You contributed nothing to that. He's very, very, very clear all over the New Testament. But once you're transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, you are now a subject with a king. And so we have all these other images we want to use for Jesus, and there's good things about them. We want to think of him as our best friend. Um, I was about to say, all the other ones I can think of, there isn't a good thing about them. (laughs) You guys remember, anybody who grew up when I grew up, Remember the t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy? That's a trend I'm perfectly happy to see go away forever. Um, Jesus is your friend. He does love you. You're in his family. But to think that first and foremost, he's someone beside you, like he's your advisor, is a, is a tremendous mistake. He's your king. And so when you see like the athlete, you know, win, win the game, win the big game, And they say something like, I just want to shout out to my co-pilot. Now, honestly, in all sincerity, I'm happy they're talking about God at all. But if you think the almighty maker of heaven and earth is your co-pilot, that's that's crazy. (laughs) Now, let me be clear. I'm driving the plane. But the God who created heaven and earth and holds it together by the word of his power gets to sit next to me. And if I need a break, he can drive. It's a crazy image. And so, yes, he is your friend. He loves you. You're in his family. The Bible talks about Jesus as your big brother who welcomes you into the family of God. He does everything necessary to bring you into the family. But he is, first and foremost, your king. And kings obey. Or sorry, kings are obeyed. And the good news is, if you know this king, that's what Christmas shows you this so clearly. If you know this king, then you know he's not like the kings of earth. We talked last week about Jesus as the master who gets down on hands and knees to wash the feet of his disciples. He's not like other kings. He's not fickle and arbitrary and power hungry. He's the one who actually has absolute power and what he wants to do with it is glorify his father and love his creation. And so what do you do? 
You obey a good and faithful and merciful king who loves you, who has your best interests in mind, who knows what you need when you only know what you want. He's a king worthy of your faithfulness and obedience who's not going to send you into harm's way other than for a great, wonderful purpose that has your best interest in mind. This is a king you can trust. And when you obey this king, what you find is there is order amidst the madness of our world. It's good for you. And the manner of his coming on Christmas like, illustrates this and it shows you what kind of king he is. I mean, look at this image, you guys. It's made this way on purpose. Where's the crown? Everything about Christmas imagery is about the highest thing becoming the lowest thing. That's what all the symbolism points to. I mean, all of it. Highest thing becomes lowest. So where's the crown? It's not on the head of like a warlord riding at the front of a brutal army who's going to go and like pillage and murder all his enemies. It's not even on the head of a king who's like in the highest tower of his castle looking down on all the peasants who he gets to boss around and extort from, right? The crown's in the manger because at Christmas you see the king of all kings make himself lowly. Son of David, son of man, son of God, the one destined to rule and reign all creation, the one destined to break the nations like a potter's vessel, the one before whom every knee will one day bow, becomes a helpless baby, dependent on his mother's warmth for survival. Have you ever thought about that? The king of kings, a baby born into poverty and obscurity in a land ruled by two other people who are pretending to be king. But that's how Jesus arrives. And so this is a king who loves you and who you can trust. But make no mistake, as Christians, we obey. And so I want to invite you as we approach communion um, together to think and consider in your mind and in your heart like, where are you failing to relate to God as king? Where have you either missed out on the commands of Jesus completely, or, and this is more common, you kind of know what the commands of Jesus are. They do mean something, and you understand them, but you're just not going to do it. And these could be small things, or these could be big things. This could be about the way you treat other people. This could be about your habits in your life, the things you're doing that you know the king wouldn't like you to do, the way you relate to others, the way you set your priorities. It could be the habits of dishonesty in your life, that you're not telling the truth. It could be just simply like your viewing habits, the stuff you watch on TV, the things you read, the things you fix your mind on. But deep down, all of us, if we analyze, we look at our lives, we go, man, I've got absolute massive areas of disobedience where I'm treating Jesus like an advisor who can be heeded or not rather than as a king who is to be obeyed. So I want you to consider those things. And as you do, Come to communion and recognize that everything has been done for you in order for you to enter into the kingdom of God. And so even those areas of disobedience in your life that you're struggling with and facing, if you trust in Jesus, they're no threat to your salvation. They're no threat to, your, to God's love for you. God loved you first while you were a sinner. God called you into his kingdom and saved you by grace. If you trust in Jesus, you're in his family. And so you have a, a position of security from which to pursue obedience to God. Hear that. If you trust in Jesus, 
you have a position of security from which to pursue obedience to God. That's how Christianity works. And so we come to this this incredible act of participation in this beautiful symbol of the sacrifice made for you to rescue you and bring you into the family of God. And I would invite you as we do this to reflect upon the fact that this purchases your freedom, this places you in the kingdom of God, and now from a place of security and peace in the love of God, in the family of God, we are called to pursue obedience to a good and faithful king who loves us. Amen? I invite you to stand with me.